Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it is our inaugural listener mail episode of Invention. That's right. We've put out, I don't know how many episodes of Invention, uh, like multiple Six episodes. 6,000. <laughs> well, maybe not that many, but we, we've put out a few. We've been getting some great email. I think some of the initial Invention emails we received, we read on Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail episodes, but then we started saying, no, we're getting some great stuff. Let's save them up. Let's do an Invention listener mail episode. And that's that's easy to do, but then we had another conundrum. All right, obviously, it's going to be the two of us reading them, but we can't use Carney, our mailbot, our sci-fi mailbot from Stuff to Blow Your Mind. No, this is invention. We need to turn to an, another uh, mechanical mail delivery uh, entity. Now, fortunately, the immortal craftsman Daedalus was on hand to build out a new mail bot for us, and apparently this bot was modeled on an earlier design by the forge god Hephaestus, which was, of course, the bronze automaton called Talos, known for wandering the shores of Crete, throwing giant rocks at ships. This is the prototype mail delivery variant of Talos. This is Malos. Yes. Hello, Malos. Can you say hi to our listeners? Now, fair, in, in all fairness, Malos also throws rocks at ships every opportunity uh, that he gets. Uh, but he also brings us mail. Yes, he brings us mail, and he filters out scam emails from the witch princess Medea. Oh, yeah, yeah. That kind of, uh, that kind of junk mail really gets his I-Core boiling. <laughs> so, Malos, you, you've got something for us today. Looks like this first email comes to us from our listener, Rob. Uh, where it looks like uh, I think we're going to start off with a few about the episode we did way back on toothpaste. So Rob says, in your recent episode on toothpaste, you discussed how people throughout history approached dental hygiene before uh, modern toothpaste became ubiquitous. One solution, of course, was to just do away with teeth altogether. Mm -hmm. For example, both my maternal grandparents, along with several others of that generation in my family, had all their teeth removed relatively young and wore dentures the rest of their lives. Apparently, this was considered the modern hygienic thing to do at the time, and this would have been the 1930s. 30s. They lived in the East End of London, so I worry that I'm reinforcing American stereotypes about British dental hygiene in telling you this, but nevertheless, thought you might find it interesting. Keep up the great work. I've been a regular listener to Stuff to Blow Your Mind for a couple of years now, and it's one of the only podcasts I never miss an episode of. I'm enjoying Invention very much so far as well. Regards, Rob. Well, thank you, Rob. I that That is an interesting question. I don't know whether this is the case, but I do have to wonder. If you couple a diet high in sugar with a lack of proper dental care, I wonder if it actually is healthier and more hygienic to just pull them out and do your chewing with washable prosthetics. Mm, uh, ooh, ah, I mean, I'm not one. recommending it, but I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, if so, you know, dental health, I think it is uh, becoming more and more clear that like oral health is not just about, you know, what your mouth feels like. It's connected to other parts of the body, you know, right. it, it, like uh, like what kind of microbiota is living in your mouth has an effect on the rest of you. Yeah, and there there have been some studies in recent years, and I haven't I haven't read them in detail in part because I um I had a couple of wisdom teeth taken out, and all these uh, articles are about like to what extent does wisdom teeth removal have some sort of influence uh uh, on brain power and nerves, and and so I'm like, ah, uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm not ready for that yet. So this just, is why just... I'm dumb. <laughs> um, and... I had them taken out too. Oh no. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, you know, I, I would it would be an interesting topic to discuss, probably on stuff to blow your mind. Uh, speaking of, uh, uh, back when Christian was on the show, I did an episode with him about ritual tooth removal, mm-hmm. um, which uh, I don't remember getting to, into anything in 1930s London. Uh, so this exact particular example, I think, is new to me. But we discussed some various older practices, and we also discussed some like kind of. Um, uh, you know, crackpot theories about, uh, you know, about the, the benefits of tooth removal. Um, uh, and in this, I have to bring up the, the excellent uh, Cinemax television series uh, from uh, Soderbergh, uh, The Nick, uh, hmm. which went two seasons and it was phenomenal. Uh, I watched it. I don't know if anybody else did, but, but it was, it's tremendous. It had Clive Owen, uh, just a wonderful cast. And, uh, and one of the characters that shows up, uh, played by John Hodgman, in his in his best cinematic role with uh, like hands down he plays a a slightly fictionalized version of this character who did advocate uh, teeth removal not for oral health but for mental health hmm. uh, he saw it as a means to treat uh, mental ailments and uh, and i believe had his uh, his children's teeth removed as well Okay, so in addition to us not actually recommending you removing all your teeth and replacing them with prosthetics mm-hmm. there there have actually been some some maybe kooks in history who did recommend this. Yes, there have been. and uh, Confirmed kooks. Yeah, I mean, I think largely confirmed, yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I would recommend going back and listening to that episode. Uh, it's of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, for more uh, grisly tooth removal uh, practices. All right, here's another one from Malos. Uh, this one comes to us from Kate. Hi, guys. My name is Kate. I am from the Ukraine, and I currently live in Sri Lanka. Oh. I enjoy your podcast a lot, listen to each episode, and it's exciting to learn something fascinating about regular routine objects every day. I just re- recently listened to your episode about toothpaste, and you mentioned uh, there that toothpaste is perhaps only a f- uh, one of a few hygiene products which is not gender marketed. Sadly, that's not entirely true. As Colgate had uh, con- a controversial campaign back in 2016, uh, uh, as it can be traced, advertising toothpaste just for men. <laughs> And even though it was met with highly negative reaction, product uh, the, the product is, is still continued to be advertised on the website and included a link. I did look this up. This is so hilarious. I wonder what the the flavor was because it seems like the anytime you see something marketed just to men, it's it's mm-hmm. like it really gets into this. I mean, it, it tend, I, I tend to find it gets into this like really kind of like hyper masculine, nothing pretty is good kind of sensibility where it's like, yes, it smells like, uh, you know, everything has to smell like like some sort of a, uh, industrial cleaner or something. Is, you know, Ron Swanson bacon teeth, bacon yeah. and leather teeth. Uh, we've actually got an example of this coming up right after this email. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what's going through their minds. Like, if you want rock hard masculine teeth, just like Burt Reynolds, try what, you know, Mascudent. Well, I'm, an, I'm of two minds on it. Uh, I think I, I went into a similar argument in our actual episode. On one hand, this, I think this is silly. Uh, and it, I also don't like the the way it uh, you know ties into you know to broad uh, gender stereotypes. But on the other, it's like, well, if it gets people to brush their teeth, I'm in favor of people yeah, brushing their teeth. And if they have to use like uh, you know the Axe body spray of toothpaste to do it, then uh, I don't know. I agree. Better to have people brushing their teeth through some kind of weird masculine fantasy than not brushing them at all. 
Anyway, uh, uh, Kate continues, thanks again, guys, for uh, the work which you are doing. I think it's incredibly important to educate people on the origin of things we take for granted. And while I understand that you focus mainly on American listeners, I would really enjoy some statistics as for how widely this, uh, uh, these inventions are accepted in the world. Like, are there places where brushing teeth is still not pra- uh, an accepted practice? Or how widely flushing toilets are accepted uh, as norm? Now, we did get into that a little bit, but I, I mean, we didn't bust out any percentages, but we... I think this might have come in before the toilets episode. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because I remember getting and talking about, um, well, maybe we didn't get into flushing toilets all that much. We were talking about differences in um, wet versus dry uh, as a, you know, essentially a wiping technique and Mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, But yeah, this is is something that would be interesting to to think about on future episodes when we're talking about uh, more or less ubiquitous technology. To what extent is it ubiquitous? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there places where there are, uh, are there are there places in the world where you see holdouts, and what are the reasons for those holdouts? Yeah, and I think when it comes to something like uh, like oral hygiene and like toilets, in both cases, I think there are two different ways you could look at it. One is where there are just sort of like hygiene necessities that are essentially universal. That you mm-hmm. know, like somehow or another, people should not be like doing open defecation or should be practicing some kind of oral hygiene, especially if they're consuming carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you're you're past that hurdle, I think there are fine just like differences to explore in the, the cultures of hygiene, right? You know, there are different ways that people have toilet culture or, yeah. or oral hygiene culture that as long as they're getting the job done one way or another, not necessarily better or worse. Okay, but this next email, uh, it turns out the gendered toothpaste marketing is not new. This was a pretty good <laughs> ad. This is from our listener, Dominique. Uh, she says, hi, guys. I just came across this old ad for whiskey toothpaste and had to share. It touches on so many things you talked about in your toothpaste episode. You mentioned how toothpaste is one of the only hygiene products that hasn't been gendered in advertising. And this ad says, here's the real He-Man toothpaste. <laughs> Best argument yet for brushing three times a day. Uh she continues, love everything about this. Unfortunately, I don't have any info on its origin or where it came from. Is this a real ad? I found it on Pinterest while browsing ridiculous ads in history. Uh, she continues, I'd love to hear an episode about the origins of a product that started out with uh, narcotics as a major ingredient like Coca-Cola. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it fascinates me that products with cocaine, heroin, morphine, and some straight-up poisons like arsenic were marketed as health products for decades. Uh, thank you for the great new podcast. Peace, Dominique. I, I'm not positive, but I think this ad that you pointed out is real. It looks like it was sold by a novelty mail order retailer okay. uh, based out of Miami in the 1960s called Greenland Studios. I'm not 100%, but I, I think it's real. Uh, there are some other gems from the copy in this ad. Wi-Fi oral hygiene. Enjoy it. <laughs> and <laughs> quote, night before feeling on the morning after. Rinse with soda instead of water if you prefer. I would say there's plenty to enjoy about oral hygiene in and of itself. Well, you know? I know you're a strong partisan of good oral hygiene. Yes, I, I see you washing your er, washing. You see you brushing your teeth here in the office multiple times I, a day. Well, not multiple times a day. Well, I, I will brush my teeth in the office if I have lunch here. Yes. I mean, I'm not mocking you. That's admirable. <laughs> That's dedication. Uh, I do think it's interesting to consider, like, I'm sure people have written critical essays about this and stuff, but, like, why create gendered marketing categories for products that don't have pre-existing gendered connotations? You know, some products just already are like that. You know, they've been culturally like that for a long time. Uh, Obviously, there's no, like, biological need for men and women to have different uh, toothpaste. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure they think it helps them sell more, but if that actually works, like why does it work? I, I, th- that's an interesting question to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in some cases you're trying to make a product that already has gender stereotypes. You know, you're trying to to mm-hmm. to, to to make an acceptable um, you know, counter product. Uh, but but to your point, like who was saying that toothpaste was just for for women? Yeah. Um, I guess the other way of looking at it is it's just all about like inventing new product lines. Mm-hmm. And it, like if you're the first person to put out a men's only toothpaste, uh, and and you can convince the public that that these things should be gender specific. Yeah. Then uh, you have a leg up on the competition, right? If this indeed takes off. I guess it's true that people are always looking for a way to make customers feel that this product is for them. Mm-hmm. And gendering the marketing of it is just like one easy way to say, uh, oh, okay, here's one way in which this fits a characteristic of me and it's my gender. Yeah. You also see the marketing of, you know, non-gender specific things. Yeah. Um, like uh, like non-gender specific, uh, say, clothing for children, that sort of thing. Yeah. Do, essentially doing the exact opposite route, taking something that's like classically gendered yeah. in culture and, and yeah. This would be an interesting thing to come back and, and explore in more depth. I don't know, maybe find somebody who has expertise in all of this, especially the, just the historical usage of uh, of these tactics. Yeah. Might be more, more appropriate for stuff to blow your mind. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, uh, anyway, thank you, Dominique. Just one last uh, message that we got about toothpaste. This came from a listener uh, named uh, Tobia uh, from Italy. Uh, And just Tobia wanted to mention the fact that honey – so some of the historical recipes for toothpaste that we talked about involved honey. And we were wondering, that sounds like a not very good idea because, of course, honey has sugar in it. The more sugar you put in the the mouth, the more you invite bacteria that are going to cause tooth decay. And Tobia was pointing out that uh, that is true, but, of course, honey also has antimicrobial properties and that is also true. So you may be, you know, weighing the balance of two different things there. Honey both fighting a bacteria by its natural antimicrobial properties and having sugar in it that would encourage the growth of bacteria and so you just have to test and see. And Tobia suggests there is some indication that that honey could be useful as an antimicrobial in the mouth. All right, here comes another one. Uh, This one comes to us from Jim. Guys, I really enjoy your podcasts. I've been the senior computer-generated tactile graphics artist for the ATPC in Carmarillo, California since 2002. Your podcast about Braille was interesting. If when you decide to do a follow-up on the subject, you might want to delve into tactile graphics. Up until the turn of this current century, uh, the way Braille transcribers dealt with textbook, especially uh, graphics, uh, that could not easily be described by the written word was to glue down bits of string, fabric, cardboard, and the like to the page. As technology advanced, they would use a uh, thermoform or vacuum machine to form a tactile page. It is a procedure still in use. But then came the ability to use a computer to create the graphic with software and then print onto a sheet of encapsulated treated paper, thereby making edits much easier and the ability to reproduce the graphic uh, indefinitely. I still find the procedure fascinating and quite often challenging, especially when having to translate graphics of anatomy, biology, astronomy, etc. into two-dimensional black and white illustrations that are quote-unquote readable with fingerprints. College textbooks can use some very beautiful and colorful graphics that are pleasing to the eyes, but not at all kind of fingertips. Sorry to be verbose, I didn't uh, want this part of a Braille textbook to be left out. 
that's a great point, Jim. Yeah, it makes sense to think about things that cannot be easily represented with text. Because if it's just like, I mean, that's one thing that like the alt text on, uh, you know, images on in, in, on websites is for. If you can describe the image in words, well, then that's one thing. But there are some images like like a map, you know, what 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 does it help to describe a map like the borders of a country in words? You need to be able to like spatially represent that somehow. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if we talked about this on the episode, but I, I know I had some stuff in my original notes about it. And that being uh, some NASA texts that uh, NASA had put out, uh, try, you know, the, the, the educational texts about space mm-hmm. uh, that use tactile graphics, namely uh, the solar system. Like how do you how do you talk about the solar system and really, uh, you know, properly, you know, relay everything w- without some sort of graphic? I mean, I, 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 it's hard for me to, to, to imagine because for me, those graphics were always there. I always had access to the visual data. Uh, but if you didn't have the visual data to rely on, how do you, how do, you do it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and space is one of those things that, I don't know, it, it seems so much like my appreciation of it is based in increasingly high resolution images that are like produced by telescopes and stuff. I just get a visual feel for the thing that's being talked about, whether that's a, you know, a nebula or a, or the surface of a planet. Uh, and like, how, how do you represent that to somebody who is vision impaired or can't see? All right. Um, Malos is uh, waving another one around. This one is from Luke. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Luke uh, was responding to the Braille episode as well, in which we were we were kind of, uh, you know, contemplating the idea of non-visual species creating written language and, and to what extent they might create something like Braille. Uh, you know, they use similar, um, you know, uh, you know, dots and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, uh, raised uh, dots to uh, uh, to convey uh, meaning, and um, and we were like, well, there's got to be some sort of treatment in science fiction on this. And Luke reminds us that in Dungeons and Dragons, you have the Elithids, the Mind Flayers. Ah, okay. Uh, which, incidentally, Christian and I did an entire episode about the science of Elithids years back. Uh, and it just completely slipped my mind. Uh, so I'm glad to be reminded of this. Specifically, the, uh, he says, quote, the Elithids developed a written language qual- called Qualith, consisting of four broken lines. And they read it using their face tentacles because the Elithids are, you know, they're, they're kind of like squid-faced, purple, uh, uh, underdark, uh, psychic beings. They're little Cthulhu's. Yeah, they are definitely uh, Cthulhuoid in uh, appearance. Yeah, uh-huh. and they are. If I remember the lore correctly, they they do have origins outside of uh, uh, you know at least off-world origins. You know, mm-hmm. they're essentially alien uh, beings that have come to the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Cthulhu tots. Yeah. So anyway, uh, thanks for reminding us uh, about that, Luke. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Let's not forget the Elithids. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Okay, we're back. Now, it seems that Malos is offering to let me look through a box that has a tiny aperture in the wall to read this next message. This message comes from our listener, Tay. Tay says, Hi, I love the pod, and your recent Camera Obscura episode was really interesting. I especially enjoyed hearing the two of you non-artists discuss your thoughts on the role of technology in art. I studied craft in school, and I'm a jeweler by trade, and this is a huge and ongoing discussion for the industry. Basically, jewelry is at this weird point now where things like 3D printing and computer models 
modeling are beginning to replace hand-carving wax in lost wax casting. It's exciting because it makes more intricate and precise designs more accessible to less experienced jewelers, but it also takes out the real handmade element of a piece and blurs the line between those who are more skilled or less skilled jewelers. Consumers mostly don't know the difference, but there is something heartbreaking about watching a craft that uh, I adore and think is so important to keep alive slowly wilt. Personally, I don't think people modeling designs on computers should call themselves jewelers, they're designers. It's different when you get your hands dirty and spend 20 hours carving a block of wax with teeny tiny tools and the wax could fall and shatter at any moment. I don't know, it's complicated. Anyway, just wanted to add some perspective from my specific field. I'd love to hear more from you all in this area. Thanks, Tay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a great example uh, to contemplate uh, springing off of that episode. Yeah, I think this came from the fact that we were talking about the idea of um, the camera obscura as like an art assistance tool, mm-hmm. like uh, that you instead of just like eyeballing something and then trying to sketch it or paint it, that you could start with uh, with with a essentially a tracing, a tracing of its reflection through a camera obscura, and this would give you somewhere to start from. And and the question was, does that reduce the value of the art? I I kind of don't really think so. It doesn't seem to bother me, but uh, I can see how it would bother some people. And when like, I don't know, maybe that translation directly through the eye and the brain without any kinds of uh, uh, perspective replicating tools and all that is somehow an important part of the the craft itself and the value of it. Huh? It's interesting. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've seen some like some talks and read some material about you know the the idea of of uh, especially the use of robotics and AI being something that should evolve alongside the artist so that ideally, as in as is the case in you know in many instances when we're considering robotics and AI, that the the machine should not replace the human. The machine should augment the human. Mm-hmm. the The machine should be able to, in this case, I would imagine, make the jeweler better. Um, I'm not I'm not I don't know enough about the craft to really know exactly where the areas for that uh, would be, but. Um, it, it, for instance, it, you think of uh, the manufacturing use of robots, mm-hmm. and you, of course, see where robotics are best used to take over, um, uh, you know, tasks of intense repetition and tasks that are inherently dangerous. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, you know, welding, various welding jobs are ideal for, for robots. Right. But then even in the manufacturing world, you see the use of uh, what are referred to as cobots, mm-hmm. uh, machines that work alongside the human. And then I believe there's a certain amount of machine learning uh, ideally involved here as well. But but then it, it gets to this, this idea that, again, you're not replacing the human, you're creating a machine that can aid the human in their, uh, in their job. And, uh, and if we're, we take that out of the factory scenario, we're looking into the artistic world, uh, that's what you would want as well. Like, what is the thing that makes you better at that craft in the same way that, say, a word processor does not write the story for you, but a really good word processor is perhaps making up from some of your uh, your uh, your shortcomings, and in the future, you know, making up for even more of your shortcomings, you know, and allowing you to focus on the things that you're uh, particularly skilled at. Yeah, and I wonder about this even in the realm of. Uh, I don't know, crafts or skills we think of as more creative and and less just like industrial stuff. Like Mm -hmm. uh, obviously word processors are are a good example there. But even when the 
computer or machine takes a more active role, I can see an interesting kind of symbiosis emerging where uh, one example is this sort of uh, this version of chess. I don't know if you've heard about this. I think I read somewhere where the the chess grandmaster uh, Gary Kasparov talked about this, the idea that you could have essentially chess players that are a master chess player that is also working with a powerful AI chess player. Mm. So like they are competing at just like the, the, you know, the AI recommends a series of moves as you could do this or you could do this. And then the human player sort of picks from among the AI's generated recommendations. And that's sort of a new emergent type of chess strategy, uh, uh, you know, a Android hybrid chess player. You know, I, uh, I, of course, this leads me to Mortal Kombat. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, this is not quite the same thing, but um, I'm really intrigued by the, the, I picked up this latest Mortal Kombat game that came out. Now, and perhaps this is something that's been big in fighting games and video games for a while, and I just mm-hmm. didn't notice it. But there's a huge um, emphasis placed on tweaking your own AI player and then throwing the AI player at uh, a whole bunch of fights, you know, like a fight tower, and then reaping rewards like in-game currencies and whatnot based on its performance. So there are plenty of people that are still playing this game the way, you know, people have always played a fighting game, which is control the the, the character and have it fight other, have it fight AI characters or human characters. But then there's this whole idea of tweaking the AI, AI character and having it fight other AI and perhaps like sitting back and watching it uh-huh. or then coming back and checking on it to see how it's performed. That's interesting. So yeah. it's like taking a game that would normally be an action game where you're in the moment and turning it into a strategy game where what you're trying to do is optimize the design of your uh, competitor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, perhaps we have li- many of our listeners out there who play game, play lots of games. Maybe you can speak to this. Uh, is this part of an ongoing trend in other games? And then what if anything, might we, uh, you know, learn from this uh, about uh, the, our, our future engagement with AI? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so anyway, are, are we ready for this next message from Melos here? Yes. This, uh, this one seems to be coming with some danger. Yes, this one comes to us from Evan. And uh, Evan says, quote, Loving the new podcast so far, I stumbled onto Stuff to Blow Your Mind nearly a year ago and was pleasantly surprised at how I found myself enjoying episodes on subjects that I never would have been normally interested in. You truly opened my eyes to all sorts of weirdness and wonder in places I would never have looked. Anyway, during the opening of Death Ray Part 2, you mentioned that Death Ray technology is something which, during the 20s and 30s, was portrayed in the media as being just on the cusp of becoming a reality, and I immediately thought of the flying car. The running joke on today's car blogs is that the flying car is always about two years away from becoming a thing. I can recall watching the Discovery Channel specials as a kid, which showed then-amazing prototypes of futuristic-looking flying cars and thinking at the time that my first car might take to the skies, just like Doc and Marty in Back to the Future 2. I know that numerous technically successful uh, attempts have been executed at least as far back as the 50s and 60s, and even today, Boeing and Uber are testing prototypes. It seems like these contraptions have long been reality, but for numerous reasons, both financial and practical, uh, they just can't seem to make it to prime time. Seems like a perfect topic for an episode of Invention. Thanks for all the fantastic factoids. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening. Well, thanks so much, Evan. I I think you're exactly right about uh, flying cars. I think in both cases, actually, death rays uh, or directed energy weapons and flying cars, 
it's not that we don't have the technology to create these things. It's just that they're not practical for the use cases that their enthusiasts have imagined. Uh, I mean, we can create compact flying vehicles that would be like a flying car. It's more a question of these practical problems that would make it impossible for people to, to, you know, use these to get to work in the morning. Like, how does it take off? How much room does it need to take off? How do you guarantee safety and pilot expertise, right? I mean, do you really want the drivers that you drive next to in traffic operating flying (laughs) vehicles? Um, and and uh, how much energy, how much, uh, you know, how loud is it? How much energy does it take to fly or does it take to use this directed energy weapon? I would say given all these practical problems, you begin to question like why you would actually want a flying car other than the fact that it's conceptually cool. Yeah, and and so much about the, the flying car would be an interesting topic to discuss because a lot of it is just the idea that the experience of the car takes place in the sky. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, one thing that I come back to time and time again on this is if people say, where are the flying cars? Mm-hmm. I would say, well, we have the helicopter. Yeah. Now, the the thought exercise here would be think of what the helicopter does that a flying car is supposed to do and think about the reasons that a, that, that helicopter does not satisfy your thirst for a flying car. And I think those answers will will mostly explain why we don't have flying cars and why we have helicopters instead. I think a lot of this would have to do with cost and energy efficiency. Yes, yeah. I, I think I think that's where you find your main answers, because yeah, essentially a flying car is available to those with the uh, the money to spend on it, and it is a helicopter. That's a really excellent point, and I think there's a similar thing going on with death rays. I mean, you've got these problems with portability, energy use, range. It's not that you can't create a directed energy weapon. It's more like you you could accomplish a lot of the same goals that are imagined uh, for a directed energy weapon with cheaper existing conventional ballistic weapons. Right. Though that's not to say there might not be some special cases where a directed energy weapon is is desirable for some reason, uh, you know, strategic or, or otherwise. Uh, and obviously, you know, military research is ongoing. I, I was reading uh, when we we talked about a little bit in the Death Ray episodes, uh, just uh, some of the more recent projects working on stuff like this. It, it is ongoing. But I think for most of the reasons people imagined a Death Ray might be useful, you know, other things get the job done cheaper and and much more simply. Okay, we got one more death ray email here. This comes to us from Walter. Walter says, Hi guys, loved your discussion on death rays. Uh, I listened during my morning walks and I might have been temporarily distracted and missed it, but I don't recall a discussion of what might be the closest we have to a death ray, the neutron bomb. If I remember correctly, this is a device that utilized a small nuclear explosion that had an enhanced output of neutrons that could penetrate tanks and other armor, including buildings and bunkers. The unfortunate people affected would perish horrible deaths brought on by intense radiation sickness and inspire uh, and expire within an hour of exposure. The affected area would have no physical damage, but all living beings would be eradicated. Nasty business, but about as close to a proper death ray as we've come so far. Thoughts? Walter. Yeah, I, I think in a way this is right. I, I don't think a neutron bomb would be without causing physical damage, but I think it's that the idea that was that there would be reduced damage to physical infrastructure uh, and that it would be able to better penetrate uh, armor shielding like you, – you did mention this – armor shielding like in armored vehicles and stuff. Mm-hmm. But would a neutron bomb be able to bring about lasting peace in the oh, way no. that the death ray was supposed to? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think so. Unless you're making the same argument people make about nukes in general, mm-hmm. I think you know the the whole mutually assured destruction thing, which 
We talked about the logic of that in the episode and we discussed some criticisms of the idea of uh, mutually assured destruction as as a bringer of world peace. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do think that that's, that's possibly a good comparison, uh, certainly in the same way that all nuclear weapons are. But I, one of the ways it might be similar is that I, I don't know if – one of the things about the death ray was that people imagined it was kind of like somehow clean, mm. you know, that it was a way of defending yourself from enemies in, uh, in some way that didn't involve like blood and guts and all that, like, uh, you know, shrapnel hitting bodies and people exploding into pieces. It would just sort of like make people disappear without a trace and the enemy planes would, would stop flying and they wouldn't be able to attack your city and bomb you. Uh, I'm not sure if the neutron bomb works like that. I mean, the neutron bomb, I think, would tend to be an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon, right? Yeah. And it would also not be clean. It would give people horrible radiation burns all over their body and, and cause them an agonizing death. Well, plus, you know, with the death ray, since it never can't real, can't really came to fruition, uh, you know, it'll, it will remain uh, largely clean, right? Like we, there right. are no stories of loss and tragedy and death due to the death ray. Um, because I, I imagine, it, you know, if you're talking about war, mm-hmm. like the results of, of deploying this weapon with even the, you know, the best of intentions uh, would still have horrifying results. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons from our death ray discussion is that there is no such thing as a clean weapon. It's a fantasy. You know, weapons are always going to harm and kill people. And to the extent that that they are invented and funded and used, people have to keep that in mind. I mean, these things are, are real killer technologies that have real consequences. All right, we have another one, and this one comes to us from Rob. Rob says, your chopsticks episode was great, and uh, throughout the episode, I kept wondering if you talk about using them for non-Asian foods. When I was growing up, my babysitter was a next-door neighbor teenager whose mom was Japanese and dad was Inuit. They used chopsticks for virtually every meal. When my babysitter babysitter taught me how to use them, she made me practice using them while eating popcorn. It was a horrible experience at the time, but in the 40 or so years since, I've been very thankful. I used uh, the same tactic when I taught my kids to eat with chopsticks. My youngest daughter even uses her old set to sort Lego into colored piles. Oh. Oh, I, I've, I have more to – I can add some stuff on this in a second. Okay. Uh, uh, Rob continues, quote, It has been at least 35 years since a cheese puff has left processed cheese residue on my fingers – Thanks to chopsticks. <laughs> if I want a pickle from a jar, no fork for me. Chopsticks time again, time and time again. Uh, and I have to back him up on that. I've been really pressing my family to start using chopsticks to get the pickles out of the jars. So just reaching the whole hand well, in. Well, that or just forking is sometimes problematic. And don't even get me started on the spoon. Uh, <laughs> I haven't won them over yet, but I'm glad that Rob is able to back me up. Um, He continues, same with pickled beets and onions. Jelly beans are my chopstick nemesis, though. I'm only about one success for every 25 or so attempts. But can I ever make short work of a pile of cooked peas or corn kernels? (laughs) Fun side note, in French, chopsticks are called uh, baguettes. Much wordplay fun followed from this in my English-French home when my kids were younger. Thanks for the skill and passion you both put into your work, and I hope you get as much reward making the shows as your fans get from consuming them. All the best in 2019, Rob. Oh, thanks, Rob. Uh, So what's your Lego story, Robert? Okay, I've not tried picking them up with Legos, but— You mean uh, picking Lego up with chopsticks? Yeah, oh, I've tried neither. (laughs) Okay, I see. But uh, I, I will say this. My son had a birthday in the last month. 
and he was given this uh, cool little game. It's like wooden blocks, and it's uh, the thing is, it's like it looks like sushi. All right. Oh. Uh, and it's like a puzzle of sushi and it comes with real chopsticks. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to time each other and compete against people uh, drawing a card and you see the way the, the wood pieces are assembled to form sushi. And then you use the chopsticks to move the pieces of wood around. And it's a beautiful looking game. Uh, I was really excited to, to play it. Uh, but I've, I've personally found it very frustrating to try and pick up like painted wood objects with chopsticks. I mean, I guess in large part because I'm I'm not used to trying to pick up anything other than food and, and then again, only certain foods. Right. Whereas something that is slick like a piece of painted wood or like a Lego, uh, I would think that would – I would think the Legos would prove challenging. But it sounds like Rob's got it figured out. Well, yeah. I think hard things like that, usually you're not uh, putting things in your mouth that are as rigid as Legos or as mm-hmm. pieces of wood. And so they're going to have less resistance and grip on the uh, on the chopsticks than, yeah. than food would. So um, anyway, uh, still do- delighted to, to hear uh, uh, insight from a listener on the chopsticks episode. All right, time to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. It's time to talk about toilets, Robert. Oh, yes. The toilet episodes. Those were a lot of fun. We got a lot of toilet emails. Uh, there's no way we're going to get through them all. But I figure let, let, we'll do a few of them. Let's, let's dive in. Dive into the toilet world. All right. What, is, uh, what does uh, Malos have for us here? Malos hands us this message from Logan. Says, hello, Robert and Joe. I want to start off by saying I'm a huge fan of both Stuff to Blow Your Mind and Invention. Don't know if you guys meant to leave it out or if, you, if it didn't come up during your research, but here's a fun fact. Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow on Game of Thrones, is related to John Harrington, ah. the inventor of the flush toilet. And then Dr. Jon Snow showed up in the episode as well. Of course, oh the goodness. epidemiologist of uh, <laughs> Victorian England. Uh, I hope you both found this bit of trivia enjoyable. Uh, uh, so this was from Logan. I I did come across this when we were researching the episode, but I couldn't figure out if it was true. I saw it alleged in some questionable-looking sources and couldn't find anything that looked good for it. Hmm. So I, I don't know if this is true, but I don't know. I kind of just want to take Logan's word for it. Well, I mean, hopefully. I mean, Kid Harrington's not going away anytime soon, so – Surely somebody will ask him about this in an interview and he'll he'll provide a real answer. All I know is that in the show Game of Thrones, Jon Snow does not create a toilet. Uh, I may imagine one of the maesters would create toilets. That yeah. would be probably where it would come from. Toilets do figure into the into the books and the show a little bit. Well, yeah. Several characters die on toilets, I yeah. think. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's a question. What's the most technologically advanced toilet in a, in a fantasy novel? Uh, that would be an interesting question to have answered. I believe the Red Keep in Game of Thrones has garderobes. Yeah? Yeah. Anyway, uh, maybe, maybe I'll do another quick one here from Ivana about toilets before we move on. Uh, you, you mind if I do this one, Robert? Go for it. Okay, so Ivana says, hey, guys, big fan. Well, theoretically, that's a lie. I'm a fan of stuff to blow your mind. Uh, so maybe this was her first episode of Invention. Well, you recently featured the toilet episode on stuff to blow your mind. I've been listening for a few years now, but never thought to write in until today when at the end of part one of the toilet episode, you mentioned Slovenia. I have no idea why, but I always get excited when somebody 
mentions my home country, most likely based in the fact that we're small and most people don't know we exist. Oh, I don't know. A lot of people know about Slovenia these days. Uh, she writes, I also thought it might be interesting for you to know, if you didn't already, that the, cast in, the castle you mentioned called uh, Prajamska Castle literally means under the cave. Hmm. This was the castle that was in the, in the mouth of the cave where the uh, scoundrel who ran the castle got blasted by a cannon while he was sitting on the garderobe. Somebody betrayed him, and he had the worst bathroom break of his life. Uh, Ivana says, hope you're having a great day. Uh, I'll try to listen to you again soon, maybe in an invention. I mean, what's another Stuff Media podcast uh, on the top on top of the five I'm already listening to? <laughs> Keep up the great work, Ivana. Thank you, Ivana. Yeah, I do want to say we realize, you know, we try and realize all the time that there's so many podcasts out there to listen to yeah. these days, and there's so many great podcasts. So we feel extremely privileged uh, anytime something we've made makes it into your regular rotation. Absolutely. We, we, are, we are humbled by uh, you taking us into your ears. All right. Here is another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Matthew. Uh, Matthew says, hi, Robert and Joe. I just finished part two of your episodes on the humble toilet. I've had the privilege of seeing how the job is done in a few different parts of the world. And since you asked for it, I thought you'd appreciate a few stories <laughs> in descending order of technological bells and whistles. Uh, number one, at age nine in a Japanese airport, I just finished my business and was trying to find the flush function among the myriad options on the control panel. I pressed a likely looking button illustrated with a few droplets of water, but the toilet didn't flush. Instead, a faint whir emanated from the machine and a small silver cylinder protruded from in the bottom of the bowl. That day, I learned about the bidet. <laughs> Fortunately, my reflexes were quick enough to dodge the water jet, but I still had to scramble to find the off button while the cubicle door got sprayed. Was it that fortunate? Would it have been horrible to get sprayed? Well, I mean, it depends where it, it sprays you. Like, I, oh, I guess yeah. the thing about a bidet is you you want it to spray you, but it, you want it to spray you in one very specific spot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anywhere else is kind of a failure of uh, not necessarily a technological uh -huh. failure, but at least a user error, right? Uh, yeah, maybe if you were small, like when you were a child, you might not have been aligned properly for yeah. it. Uh, number two, on a recent visit to Japan, forewarned and forearmed, I was able to better appreciate some of the extra functions. In particular, one model had a small sink built into the top of the cistern. Flushing caused water to flow in the sink first so that the water one used to wash their hands was then used to fill the cistern for the next flush. Hmm. Not a full gray water system, but a great water-saving trick nonetheless. Yes, um, you know, as uh, years and years ago, I guess, goodness, probably like a decade ago now, I wrote, yeah, it was at least that because it was my first article for How Stuff Works. It was like a test article. I had to wrote how, write how gray water reclamation works. Uh-huh. And in that article, I did mention one of these uh, in passing. You see, you see some of these models where essentially it gives you the option of washing your hands with the fresh water, and then the, that water can then be used to flush the toilet, mm -hmm. which, uh, which I think is a sensible way to go. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, odd that we haven't seen more of that uh, design uh, implemented. Double dipping on your water when you can. Yeah, exactly. Uh, number three, a few years ago, I took a trip to Nepal to hike the Himalayan uh, Annapurna Circuit. The highest point on the trail, uh, Thorong La Pass, is 5,416 meters or 17,769 feet above sea level, higher than Everest Base Camp. As you climb, the air gets thinner, the accommodation becomes progressively more spartan, and the toilet facilities become less familiar to the Western perspective. The lower altitude tea houses had a number of Western options, and getting assigned one of those rooms was a small luxury. But higher up, one quickly had to master the squat. It was that or nothing. 
Lastly, on this same uh, Nepalese trip, my stomach was taking a while to get used to the local fare. Inevitably, nature called when I was out on the trail, without a restroom in sight. I'd had the foresight to keep a roll of toilet paper in my pocket, but sometimes one must make do. On that day, my loo of the view was a hastily dug hole in the snow, off the trail, behind a convenient boulder, uh, looking over the valley and at one with nature. Uh, I I attach a photograph of a typical vista from the trip, though not necessarily the view in question. (laughs) Keep up the great work. Warm regards, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, I appreciate hearing about uh, the various toilets that Matthew encountered. But this also gets down to the heart of like just the joy of traveling Mm -hmm. is checking out uh, not only like the big sweeping differences and big cultural differences, but like the toilets. I'm there's a part of me that I think is always going to be excited to see what the specific toilet technology looks like, um, how you turn on the hot and cold water in the shower, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, you know the, the 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 little details of travel. Well, yeah, even with toilet culture, it's a great way of. Uh, Travel is a great way of seeing that the way you do things is not necessarily the normal way of doing things. It's just one way to do things. Yeah. Okay, so we got a short message from Chris about – now, remember in the toilet episode, I was horrified by all these early toilets like these Elizabethan toilets and, you know, the later ones that have all these like cushions around the bowl. Uh, it just seemed gross to me that there's there's cloth on all the toilets. It seemed unsanitary. Um But uh, Chris writes, subject, toilet part one, the reason for cloth seat covers, and then continues, is that it keeps your bottom safe from the icy shock of a cold seat in countries that can get cold in winter, but where central heating is uncommon. I always made use of one in Hong Kong, and my unshocked bottom thanked me for it. Oh, well, you know, that that is a great point. I I don't remember that point of our conversation, Um, or I guess I vaguely do, but I wasn't thinking about, like, modern design. So I remember... Uh, one of my grandparents, I think, had not a cloth cover, but kind of like this soft cover. Like this was kind of like a softer plastic kind of cover. Mm-hmm. And it indeed was less cold to sit on. I remember that. So, yeah, in a, in a cold climate, it would I can see where it would make sense. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Luke. Hey, guys, big fan here. I have listened uh, for a few years to Stuff to Blow Your Mind and really enjoy the way you guys present topics. I'm really enjoying your new podcast. That would be Invention. Uh, You always say you want folks with experience in what you were talking about to write in. Sadly, this is my first time writing in, and it's to to address the masculine toilet. (laughs) Sigh. I just wanted to say that you two were right and that there are definitely they are definitely being silly about building a bigger, badder toilet or at least branding it the way they have. I write in not because I have used one, because I can vouch that the concern is at least real, if not pressing. Robert is right. That uh, Right, and that just sitting positioning will take care of the issue on a normal toilet. Just like everything else in life, the real problem is that it gets you when it is the worst possible time. Uh, I am sure you guys have uh, worked an exhausting day before and then had tasks and work in your personal lives piled up on, uh, on top on the same day. And when it is finally over uh, and exhaustion has permeated your very bones, what uh, is the, the last weary thing you do before bed? Collapse on the toilet <laughs> and make sure your uh, rest will be long and undisturbed one. And that's when it gets you. Not, uh, not, so not only do you have the monstrous uh, day on your mind, but now you have gotten one of the most intimate parts of your body dirty and at least in your, your mind the grossest place in your home. So I agree, not a huge problem that requires a new feat of engineering, but when it does get you, it really sticks in your mind 
LOL. I would I would suggest the masculine toilet is not a new project product though, just rebranding. This style of toilet has existed for decades and can be found in special needs, special access bathrooms all over North America. Toilets designed for these washrooms are taller than average toilets to make it easier for someone to lift themselves off. So rebranding the masculine toilets definitely sounds like a business strategy. <laughs> Luke, that was an impassioned uh, plea. <laughs> you have convinced me. Okay. Uh, he continues, On a side note, I have to address the wheel issue and your guys' use of the saying, there is no point in reinventing the wheel. I believe you guys have misinterpreted this saying, as you guys point out that better and better wheels are being made all the time. I have always figured uh, what th this would mean is that the person doing the reinventing here is limited from using any technology already involved with the wheel. They don't mean reinvent the wheel by putting ball bearings into it. Uh, when they say reinvent, they mean make something that does the same job as a wheel, but no circular wheel can be part of it. This would be a significant challenge, and since the friction uh, of a wheel on a well-maintained road is already very low, then any new invention you might come up with is probably going to only match uh, the wheel at best and most likely will involve more moving parts and be less efficient overall. Please keep up the amazing work you guys are doing. I find the majority of your topics very interesting, and it is hard to find many podcasters today that don't force a private agenda along with the story. Thanks very much. Regards, Luke. What does that private agenda mean? I don't know. What <laughs> I feel like I'm certainly pushing a private agenda. What's that? What's the private it's agenda? It's against cushions on toilets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I feel like we do have our own little pet peeves here and there. And I guess our, our basic agenda on these shows is to is to explore, is to come from a place of curiosity, uh, to learn something about the world, um, the, the, about the universe, about our history, about our cultures, and and uh, present it in an, an open-minded way uh, to learn from it and help other people learn from it as well. And uh, yeah. as, as Quato would say, to open your mind. Yes, yeah. Uh, to, to make the familiar strange. Yeah, yeah. Like we said before on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, they, they gave us the title Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but really... I like to think of the show as stuff to open your mind, right? Stuff to expand your mind, that's, that sort of thing. All right, but I know we haven't reached the bottom of the, the barrel on toilet-related listener mail yet. Okay, our next message here is coming from our listener, Sam. This concerns the episode we did about walls. Uh, Sam says, Hi, guys. Love your work and have been a loyal listener for a while now in London, UK. Really enjoyed your episode on walls, but you debunked a false factoid that I believe is actually true. You said that you can't see the Great Wall of China from space. In fact, astronauts on the ISS have reported being able to see it and can see many other human-built structures. This article from The Guardian back this up. The myth is, in fact, that you can see the Great Wall from the moon, which is untrue, and no human-built structures can be seen from this distance. While the Great Wall is difficult to see from space due to its similar color to the ground and poor condition in many places, the right condition uh, in the right conditions, it is possible to see from space. Keep up the good work. If you're ever in England, let me know and we can go for a pint. All right. Well, yeah, I looked this up, and I you are correct, Sam. I, I was getting this backward. I think what I was re remembering was this old statement that you could see it from the moon. Obviously, you can't see it from the moon. Whether you can see it from space depends on where you are in space and what the conditions right, the are. particular atmospheric conditions, yeah. Uh, you so, know, I feel like that's come up on a past episode, so I should have I should have been able to chime in on that as well. You should have spanked me right then and there. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Sam. We appreciate the correction. 
All right, we're beginning to run out of time here, but we're going to try. We have so many good ones. We're going to try and just run through a few more. Okay, cram a couple more in. All right, this one comes to us from Bob, uh, entitled Demons. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Been listening since the first episode and also a fairly new and big fan of Stuff to Blow Your Mind as well. So that's interesting. Came in uh, backwards on those. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he continues, I'm currently listening to your uh, most recent episode, uh, literally it's on pause as I type this, about the wheel, and Robert mentioned the demon Buer appearing on the cover of a Black Sabbath or Ozzy album. Now, I'm a bit of a heavy metal nut and immediately started trying to figure out what album this could be. I know the covers of every Sabbath and Ozzy release and never remembered seeing a lion head with goat legs around it. And with an image like that, how could you not want to hear that album? After a little bit of searching, I found the album you were speaking of. It's simply titled The Bure Album and was an unofficial Japanese release of a live show while Ronnie James Dio was on vocal duty. Physical copies go for a pretty penny on Discogs. I might need to add it to my want list. Anyway, I've never written into a podcast before and thought I would share. Thanks for being such a great uh, podcast host and making my workday go by a little faster. Oh, Bob, will it break your heart if I say I'm a big Sabbath fan, but I can't get down with the Dio years. I don't know why. I'm I'm not trying to – I mean, I'm glad you love them. I, I'm an Aussie diehard. So, uh, well, he was Dio. I, I'm, I'm not that familiar with this. Oh, this the, you know, so Black Sabbath had different vocalists over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty f- much only familiar with the Ozzy era. Yeah, their first uh, like seven albums, I think, had Ozzy Osbourne on on vocals. Uh, their first six albums are just just tip top, you mm-hmm. know. And then I think they started do, uh, being more hit or miss uh, in general opinion. Eventually, they ended up with different vocalists on different albums. Several of their albums had Ronnie James Dio as okay. the singer. And I think he's more of the kind of traditional, or I don't know if you could say it's more traditional since it's Black Sabbath, but the the kind of metal vocalist you think of and less like the, the drawling uh, uh, Ozzy Osbourne style. Okay. I know tons of people love love the Dio albums and uh, and and more power to you if you do. But I'm I'm a first six kind of guy. <laughs> okay, here's one more about wheels, real quick. Uh, we got tons of emails, essentially on the same subject as this one I'm about to read from Jess. Jess says, "Hi, I've been loving the Invention podcast after being a fan of Stuff to Blow Your Mind for a couple of years now. Because uh, of you two and other folks in your podcast network, I've become that annoying person. Adding, well, I learned on a podcast that to any relevant conversation. We're, we're glad we could help you be that annoying. Um, in The Wheel Part 2, you mentioned monowheel vehicles in science fiction and had a hard time coming up with an example. Uh, first thing that popped into my mind was a scene from Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, when Obi-Wan Kenobi, the best character in the entire saga, and General Grievous are engaged in a chase on the planet Utapau. Kenobi's ride is a creature called a Varactyl, whose name is Boga. General Grievous is riding a mono-wheeled vehicle that has legs and oh. some other neat attachments. Check it out here. She's got a link. Thanks, and keep up with the great podcasts. Uh, and she also attached a photo of her dog, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, who would have, uh, quote, who would have been probably terrified of a mono-wheeled vehicle of any type. Uh, this was what I was thinking of and couldn't remember okay. when I was trying to conjure up the example. We were both saying, like, I know there was a big movie that had one. What was it? There you go. Yeah, now I'm, I'm picturing it. I can picture, like, the. I think I've seen the Lego thing in stores uh-huh. uh, where they have this vehicle. Uh, yeah, I forgot all about uh, old General Grievous. Um, I, I need to see that. I need to see Revenge of the Sith again. I really do. You know, I remember th- that was, like, a scene that stood out to me as fun. So uh, – 
my brief history with the Star Wars prequels is I didn't see episode one when it came out, mm-hmm. uh, despite being a huge Star Wars fan when I was a kid. Just never saw it. Never saw episode two. Finally, when episode three came out, I went with the theater. Uh, I went to the theater with my friends to watch it. And I sat there watching it and I was like, wow, this is bad. And I got out and I was like, was was that as awful as I thought it was? And they were like, you know, if you've seen the other two, no. Uh, and that was exactly my experience. I went back and I saw the other two and suddenly episode three seemed great by comparison. Yeah, uh, yeah, I kind of had, I remember I saw one uh, twice in the theater uh-huh. and uh, can, and was convinced that I loved it. I just had built up my, I wanted to love it so much that I, I did for a while. And uh, and I don't know, I, I haven't gone back to it. Maybe I would love it again if I saw it. Uh, I think one of my big things is with perhaps at least the first two is that the CGI, while terrific for the time, yeah. is maybe not as as great now like i, I kind of want to see i want all three of them to be remastered before i watch them again i guess <laughs> uh as opposed as i was to doing that to the original trilogy i'm all mm-hmm. for it with the with the, the prequel trilogy uh but i do remember this specific scene with the mono wheel yeah. and obi-wan kenobi i remember that one being a lot of fun yeah I mean, it was sort of a highlight this was pretty cool uh, as i recall i mean there's a lot of cool stuff in that that third one especially though there well even i would say the second one is the worst one in my opinion by far just unwatchably bad except it's got christopher lee in it mm-hmm. every single time christopher lee comes on scene it's just like you know it's just like fresh air being let into a stuffy room it's like oh it's so wonderful and then he leaves and then everything get like will instantly. Well, he, when he leaves, he leaves at the end of a pretty great uh, saber battle, as I recall. <laughs> like, that was one of its redeeming qualities, is he had some really cool saber action at the end. And then you had some cool monsters. Again, they might need a little CGI touch-up work uh, for my, my modern tastes, but still, they'd had some cool monsters. But I'm getting kind of far from the monowheel. Uh, again, all props to General Rivas for busting out a monowheel in that battle. Okay, one more short wheel one. Uh, this is from our listener, Adrian. Adrian says, thank you for an awesome podcast. Just finished parts one and two on the wheel. Wanted to give a shout out to my favorite wheel spinoff technology, the pulley and the mighty compound pulley. You've probably gotten dozens of emails regarding the pulley already. No, this was the only one. Uh, In which case, I'd like to add my listener vote to a pulley episode. Also, you could tie in a couple of outstanding cousins to the pulley, the toothed wheel or gear and the winch. Love the show and loved uh, binging the end of the world, Josh Josh Clark's podcast. Oh, yeah, that's really good. uh, uh, Which I found to be an effective hangover cure. Looking forward to future episodes, Adrian. Well, we're always happy to be a hangover cure. Oh, yeah. I think the pulley and the block and tackle are absolutely uh, one of the most – it's one of the most mystifying and magical seeming of the simple machines because you watch it work and you don't understand why what you're seeing is not magic. Like like when you see a block and tackle that's got a bunch of the, the pulleys that allows, a, you know, somebody to lift an extremely heavy weight just by pulling down on a rope, a weight they would never be able to lift on their own. And, and, and you're wondering just like what's the magic that's going on there? It's all in the tension of the rope, folks. Well, hey, you know, I hate to stop it here, but Malos is already gazing longingfully at the sea. I think he wants to throw stones at uh, the ships again. So we're going to have to call it here. We did not get a chance to go through all of the great listener mail that we received for invention over the past few months, but we got to, to get through a, a good chunk of it. So uh, hopefully we'll do some more of these in the future. 
Um, we'll, we'll catch up on more listener mail uh, related to Invention episodes. Uh, in the meantime, check out all those episodes of Invention at uh, inventionpod.com. Uh, you can also find the Facebook group, which is just Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's where uh, folks talk about episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but they also talk about episodes of Invention. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 